and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Our guest on today's show is Owen Marcus. Through stories, research, personal and professional experience, Owen Marcus helps men learn how to tap into their emotional intelligence so that they can live life more intentionally and as a more remarkable man and overall person. His goal is to empower men to stop simply surviving life and instead to cultivate a support system of resources and people supporting one another and to help reclaim their emotional autonomy, their identity, and their life's purpose. Thank you so much for joining us today, Owen. We're so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, and uh, it's my pleasure and honor to be here. So to kind of open up, as we love to do to give some more context to our listeners who may or may not be familiar with you, with Everyman, with your coaching, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about how it is that you came to be doing what you're doing today and what events or experiences have shaped your work and the journey that you're on today. I got into working with men and now it's couples really because I needed that. And the backstory is I've been working with people for over 40 years. I used to have a holistic medical clinic in Scottsdale for 17 years and and I worked um, on a more physical level. So my private practice started out as a rolfer back in the 70s. And I got into all this because I didn't know it at the time, but I realized I ended up going through life with dyslexia. And then I realized later I had Asperger's syndrome. And that explained why I struggled in school, but also why I struggled in relationships. And the particular reason I got involved with working with men over 25 years ago, and specifically, or at least initially, with men's groups, was that I needed a way to learn what I didn't get to learn around how do I connect with and relate to people. And I had resistance in doing it with men, which was a good reason why I needed to explore doing that. And I did. And I immediately realized that that was a situation where I wasn't the only one experiencing that challenge of how to um, connect emotionally with other people. 
And in the course of those 25 years, I just kept on diving deeper into that field. And I started bringing in other traditions and research and experiences that I've learned and were really applying in my clinics. And I found that using those other approaches really was uh, something that enhanced the work that we were doing with men. I think it's so interesting coming from the background that you have, as you mentioned, with the, the holistic medicine and being a rolfer. And I think that so often, especially this space that kind of BBXX and every man are in is kind of this new wellness, but kind of mesh between kind of mind and body that kind of has, I think, a lot of roots in you know, it's alternative medicine, basically. It's, it should be considered mainstream medicine, I think, in a lot of ways. But particularly with that background in, in Rolfing, I'm curious what your opinion would be kind of on the relationship between the mind and the body. Yeah, I actually wrote a book on it, and I could go on for days about it. But I remember taking a graduate seminar in college and it, you know, the topic of the seminar or the semester was mind-body. And back then, I didn't know anything. It was all academic. But when I was living in Boulder in the mid-70s, I had a roommate that had given up his law practice in Florida and moved to Boulder to study to be a rolfer. And he argued his case well enough where I said, all right, all right, I'll try it. And once I tried it, it opened up another whole world of experience. So I went through the 10 sessions, as most people would when they go through a rolfing series, I went once a week. Nine months later, I was an inch taller. I'd lost a good 20 pounds of sheer tension. I was never overweight, but I was very tense. But the most impressive part was I learned how to relax. And specifically, I realized how emotionally uptight I was. Now, I didn't know why completely at that time, but I saw that, you know, like a year later, I was an entirely different man because when my physical body relaxed, my emotions relaxed. And out of that, I started feeling things I've never felt before. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting and it's such a dynamic relationship. And I think two-way as well, because when people kind of ask, oh, is BBXX kind of in what, you know, corner do you guys have your foot? And I always try and tell people that they're so closely related that, you know, to treat the body you can treat the body through the mind and help treat the mind through the body. And they're so ingrained in one another. And so we kind of try and balance that because I think, especially for me, that while certain people thrive more in these body work heavy sessions to bring out emotions and stuff like that, for me, what brings out emotions is also understanding and you know the science and the research behind things and with that I can then tap into another level that flows down from the mind to the body yeah it, it as you know it sort of goes both ways and and I'm always into working any angle or all angles possible yeah I'm a bit of a hedonist when it comes to good body work but also for myself and all my clients over the years, I'm always looking at what's going to produce the most change with the minimum amount of effort mm -hmm. and have it not just be sustainable, but generative. So that, and this is what I saw with me and, and then consequently with my clients is that 
when you give the person, this is sort of what you're learning to, you know, a new model, which helps the mind relax and expand its uh, possibilities of experience. And you relax the body and really start to connect the body and the mind and not just the mental mind, but really the more the emotional mind or the emotional body. When you start connecting them all, uh, not only do people live richer lives, but what they find is that they, they're dealing with stress much better. And we don't realize how stressed out we are, one, because we've attenuated to it personally, but on a cultural level, that's the water we swim in. And when I work with people in any capacity, and now it's a lot of men, eventually they start to realize how the stress in their life and the body's natural response to that stress was taking them out of a lot of their things that they wanted in life from particularly their relationships, but also success on a professional level. I think that having the skills and therefore the capacity to kind of recognize not only that stress, but eventually to try and figure out where it's coming from, because it can so easily kind of be mislabeled or missourced and attributed to other things or kind of leach into other things that with that awareness can be avoided or treated. And so I'm curious, you mentioned trying to figure out what produces the most change with kind of the least amount of investment, the highest ROI for creating change. What would you say you've found that to be? Well, particularly for men, and this is what I brought into the work I started doing with men, uh, specifically about 16 years ago when I redesigned the model of men's groups and, and the work that we do with men. And then that evolved into every man. And what I brought in was a lot of the, the training I was just referring to. I had the good fortune of studying with Ron Kurtz. You know who Ron Kurtz was? No, I'm not familiar. Ron Kurtz developed um, a Comey, which is a really the first psychosomatic therapy out there. He really was the one that took psychotherapy and the body and the body's response and melded it together primarily using mindfulness. And the guy was a genius. And I remember sitting in his first professional training back in Boulder in the 70s, and he he would be able to stand someone up and ask him a few questions, and the person would spontaneously start sobbing. And, you know, have this life-changing experience just from a, a few simple questions. And Back then, I had no idea what he was doing. I was just, I was intrigued enough where I said, all right, I, I got to learn how to do this. In hindsight, realized the thing that taught me the most in my ability to be able to do that kind of work now was my body and my mind relaxing. So I realized slowly that it was a lot less about learning techniques and more about changing my own relationship with myself and my own experiences, which gets to where I answer your question is I think the quickest return for people, certainly for these men I work with, is slowing them down, getting them connected to their experience, not just their mental one, which it's guys we tend to be connected to, and not just their emotional experience, but their physiological experience or physical or somatic experience. And for a lot of guys, you know, you ask them, what do you feel, like in an emotional context, and I was one of these guys in the beginning, 
and we just like roll our eyes like feel i mean what do you mean feel uh and we, you know we don't get a response mm -hmm. but if you start asking the guy what do you feel physically you're like oh i notice you're moving your foot or you're clenching your fist mm -hmm. what do you feel and ask you after a few simple questions like that sort of mindfulness questions they start feeling their bodies and once they start feeling their bodies and then you can ask them what do you feel emotionally and inevitably they feel the emotions which for some of these guys is the first time they've made that connection where you, often their partners like literally yelling at them to feel something and they're just shutting down and so we work with that whole the ptsd or emotions and how often as guys are required or requested to show up emotionally what we do is as peter levine would say in his system we freeze and so by slowing these guys down, giving them a new model, and teaching them these skills of how to connect with their body and their emotions, this is a skill set that should be intrinsic for all of us, but we've unlearned. And once they learn it, not only does it become sustainable, but they keep honing it and, and developing it. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's something that all of us could probably learn from. I know that it least for me, sometimes even when I can recognize what I feel, I struggle a lot to know where it's coming from or what the cause is. Or I can say, okay, maybe here are five reasons I might be feeling this way or having this anxiety, but what combination of them or why it's so much worse in this moment, whether it's, you know, from some other source that I don't even have on this list, that for me, becomes a struggle. So trying to, yeah, maybe help people work backwards to kind of see if flipping things around and looking at it from a different angle and through a new pathway can help them. And so does that kind of go off of emotional physiology, if you could speak to that a bit more? Yeah. So that's a term that I came up with to sort of house everything that we were talking about more. One of my other um, teachers way back was Peter Levine, who developed somatic experiencing. And he really taught me not just the, you know, the theory or the science of PTSD and what the body does around trauma and, and what takes trauma and makes it PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But he also, in the course of teaching me, taught me ways to unpack that and use the body as uh, as a vehicle to get a person out of their post-traumatic stress disorder. And the emotional physiology is, is essentially distilling that model and applying it in a more general sense. In other words, you know, saying to particularly these guys is, look, you can't have an emotional experience without a physiological or somatic experience. And much of, particularly if I think for men, our limitations or our struggles emotionally are more physiologically based or another way to say it, more stress-based. And what happens is you, we can have trauma and we, unfortunately, because of all the wars or maybe fortunately, we know a lot more about trauma and we think of trauma as something as, you know, as extreme as the trauma battle or rape. But most of that PTSD effect really comes from what I call microtrauma or the stress that we've endured throughout our whole lifetime. 
And what it does is it, it literally houses itself in particularly the fascia of the body. And the fascia is a connective tissue that holds everything together. And the guy that wrote the first book on stress, Ann Celia, that wrote the book of the stress of life, was a physician in Canada. You know, he called fascia the organ of stress. So what happens is this PTSD effect, this, this effect of the stress or the trauma not being released or completed, you know, I could talk more about what that is, but essentially not having it go through its natural cycle, it locks in. And then eventually it locks in is, is literally scar tissue or tension in the body, which sets it up to become self-perpetuating. And so one of my metaphors is, you know, it's like taking, you know, my, my plow truck and stopping at a stop sign, pushing the clutch in, but the engine's still revving. And so you're not going anyplace, but your nervous system is still in a hyper mode. In other words, you're having a stress response when there's really no external stressors happening in your life. And that really is the physiology of PTSD. But that physiology is not a pathology. It's a learned behavior. First, a physical or physiological learned behavior, and then an emotionally learned behavior that we can unlearn. And by one, understanding the model of this emotional physiology, understanding the physiology or the science of it, and then having some simple, I hesitate to use the word techniques, but skills, we can unpack that, slow it down, and ultimately heal it. As soon as you mentioned kind of the PTSD part or the part about trauma, I thought back because I remember hearing about that study in, in my talk with Dan Doty, I think it was mentioned, and I would definitely love to learn more about kind of those techniques or I don't want to call it coping mechanisms, but I find it so fascinating. And I lost my mom in a fatal accident a couple of years ago, and I buried it very deeply and lived and am coming out of a state of denial. And I have had some very intense health problems in the couple of years since. And so I can kind of very much relate to this theory and this kind of creating these feedback loops and this kind of, uh, you know, there are certain healers who will talk about the, the epigenetics and how you can kind of trauma can change things. And so I find it such an important topic that I myself would love to dive more into. So I might ask you for some resources after this. Yeah, I'm sorry about the loss of your mother, and I'm glad that you understand that, you know, that is a traumatic experience for you, and that that trauma can have broad effects. Yeah. And I would, I'm not prying, and you know, and I don't need to know, but if you're like most of us, you probably had stress and trauma before your mother's loss. Mm -hmm. So what happens with all of us is that we just keep compounding that process mm -hmm. and then often and you probably see this with someone you know someone comes in and they have a minor situation but they're having a major response for it and they can't mm -hmm. un understand it and a lot of other professionals can't understand why this little thing is causing so much problem well it causes right. so much problem because there were a lot of other often little things maybe big yeah. things prior to that yeah there were definitely <laughs> Many things prior and somebody who kind of does that alternative medicine stuff and was referring to those epigenetics also talked about kind of 
how certain years of your life, certain formative years and any trauma that happened in those can also, you know, become more susceptible to being locked in. But yeah, how it can kind of create this trigger that if not dealt with or at least um, worked on can become can compound exactly like you said. And so, yeah, recognizing that and recognizing that all of our reactions to the present moment are written by our past and our experiences and and kind of come out in ways that are shaped by that, perhaps even more so than by what's actually happening in front of us. Yeah, right on. Yeah, well said. And in this society, in our lineage with duality and the mind-body split, we've been led to believe that if we understand something, you know, in our rational mind understands it, that that fixes the problem. Obviously, for certain things, and you know, mechanical things or whatever, that's probably true. But often for emotional issues, particularly bigger ones, chronic ones, it's not true. And we get a lot of guys, you know, I do from clients to, you know, coaching clients to guys in our groups or trainings that um, are really working hard to understand things cognitively, analytically, but it's like they're beating their head up against the wall. And because they're not getting any place, they're making themselves wrong. And when they dive into this work, they realize, wow, there's nothing bad about me and nothing really wrong. My body's just experienced this stress or trauma and the coping mechanisms that I've developed work for a while and either they're not working or the coping mechanisms themselves become their own problem. Right. Yes. The coping mechanisms themselves. You know, exactly. If your coping mechanism is distraction or, or avoidance or bearing things, exactly. You just it lends itself even more so to that state of locked trauma. You mentioned in men and and learning about how they relate to others and in this kind of self-exploration. And you mentioned a bit earlier, but I'd love to hear just a bit more about that as it relates to your experience with Asperger's and how you think that may have given you a unique experience or not, but may have taught you certain lessons. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, as most of us know, one of the biggest symptoms of Asperger's is that we struggle with uh, social connection and, or emotional connection. And, you know, and I realized that that was true once I realized that I had Asperger's. Realizing I had it. But not until then. I struggled, but I didn't know why. But once I realized, oh, that was why, it made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And I relaxed because I knew why. I knew I was always different. And, you know, it seemed to be extra hard for me, but I didn't know why. And as I started working more and more with men, I, I realized that most men in this culture struggle with what I call emotional Asperger's. It seems like we all struggle. Maybe I was at the, the worst end of the continuum, but we all tend to struggle with emotional connections. And so having that problem myself and really wanting to heal it, I dove into every possible thing I could do or study to you know, not just 
find a better way to compensate for it, which I wasn't interested in, but really heal it. And so much of it's healed. And probably now in hindsight, I can say the biggest part came from sitting in a men's group, this latest one that I created uh, 16 years ago, you know, once a week uh, or four hours every week, which is longer than most groups. But having all that experience with these men and them working with their comparable struggles of connecting emotionally really taught me how to connect with people, which has significantly improved my ability to connect with women and now, you know, my partner, Dahlia. First of all, I love that the groups are four hours. One, to give space for progress and diving deeper. And two, just as kind of social proof and something as kind of I love the idea, especially if people do or are willing to talk openly about going to these groups and everything. You know, if we all spent at least four hours a week, not divided up into tiny chunks where you can't make much progress, but maybe even two hours twice a week, but really focused on that connection with oneself, uh, with others, and how to learn and grow as a result of that, and just creating the time and space to do so, I think is a really incredible thing. And I think as well, if talking about going to those groups or listening to podcasts like this and talking about it, we can help create that culture where that you know, not only doesn't become uncommon, but perhaps becomes the norm or becomes the new standard. You mentioned kind of how that label played a part in in helping you recognize that. And I think that for all of us, sometimes we know we have a problem or feel something, but having the why or having the label and exactly what you were saying kind of through that body work and labeling that, that stress or defining an emotion for it really... Um, I think is something we can all relate to with or without it being a, you know, a diagnosis, even on a smaller scale of an emotion. So you, I love this in your, I'm not sure if it's in your book or on your website, but you talk about how men can benefit from creating these connections with other men and therefore being able to with other people as well. And how instead of just trying to survive the things in life that come at us, learning to surround ourselves with people and resources that can help us tap into a place of, you know, emotional autonomy, of understanding of our own identity, and therefore of kind of more purpose? Well, that's another big question. Um, and yeah, so there's research in, that you might be familiar with around attachment, which is how we connect. You know, that's the therapy word uh, for your listeners for, for, for what connection is called in a therapeutic uh, realm. So we learn, and this comes uh, around the work of Stephen Porges, who's the researcher about the vagal nerve and how that's a key to dealing with PTSD. And what he found was that we really learn who we are in relationship to others. And it, essentially how they give us feedback and model for us. And so our ability or, or lack of opportunity to connect to people on this emotional level when we're young really determines that skill set going on for the rest of our life. And so for so many of us, particularly men in this culture, 
we weren't connected to enough or in a way that really instilled or activated this instinctual skill set of emotional connection and how to have it within ourselves, but particularly create it with another person. And to refer back to what I said earlier about so many men having emotional Asperger's. So a lot of the guys that come into, you know, our trainings or coachings or, or particularly our groups are, are normal guys. Some of them would be considered highly functional, but almost consistently they would say or would start to realize that they're performing beyond, below at least where they want to be in terms of connection and relationship. And then they start to realize within our system that, you know, because it's not really prescriptive, it's more educationally based through their own experience that, oh, I never really had anyone modeling this, let alone teach me this uh, experientially or academically. And by sitting in these groups, which again, often aren't four hours long, you know, they probably range from two to four hours uh, once a week for these guys. They get to practice this. They get to, through relating to other men, which is actually safer, which we, I can talk about than a, in a co-ed situation, but by relating to other men, they start to fill those gaps that they didn't have, you know, when they were a child, of connecting to someone in a vulnerable way on an emotional level, and then modeling and guiding other men to do the same, and then guiding other men that really reinforces their skill set, but also makes these men really feel like they're contributing because most men do not feel like their emotional intelligence or skill set is really a contribution to anyone. They often, we often feel anything from shame or just confused around that realm of existence. But by being in these groups, they start to see that, you know, after a while, they, you know, they developed a skill set that they should have had as a kid, but they didn't and it's not their fault. And then they start to guide the newer, younger men in these groups. And that really not only reinforces their, their skill sets, but makes their presence and who they are as a man of more value, which I wouldn't have thought would have been so important until I went through it. And now I've seen hundreds of men go through it, which is one of the reasons that we get so many men in our events and wanting to learn how to do this and starting groups because they see the pleasure they get in, in helping other men. I think that's such a beautiful thing for people to realize and kind of grow into is that fulfillment that comes out of helping other people on their journey, be it in your footsteps or parallel to yours or in some other place completely, but getting that sense of purpose out of that. And actually in um, my interview with Dan, he mentioned you don't need a four-year degree to be able to sit with someone and help them in some way, whether it's just listening or, you know, asking questions or just being there with your presence. I've read um, the book Elastic. It's on elastic thinking. And it, it actually gives instances in which people who are novice in a field or task or topic and have less qualifications and less knowledge prove more capable and are more likely to be able to complete the task or the challenge or because they aren't functioning within this previous understanding or boundaries. They're thinking in this other more elastic, flexible 
creative sometimes way due to that lack of exposure. And so I could imagine how for some of these that could kind of contribute to a new dynamic type of growth as a result of kind of being exposed to, yeah, this different type of thinking that you can have from having no experience versus, you know, a PhD. You're right on with that. One of the other things that I mentioned was that you know, I grew up with dyslexia and I struggled at least, well, I struggled in school. I mean, I, as I went through school and the graduate school, I mean, I got better at it. And, and I also focused on the things I could do well and not the things I struggled with. And I went down to Phoenix to study with uh, Milton Erickson. And so I had a meeting scheduled to meet the fella. And Milton Erickson, for those that might not know, developed a, a kind of indirect hypnosis that is very powerful. And he became known for his mastery. And he did hypnosis, unlike anyone else did hypnosis. And unfortunately, the day I was going to meet the gentleman, he died. So I never got to meet him. Wow. And one of the first things I learned was that Erickson was dyslexic. And once I realized that, I immediately understood the kind of hypnosis he did. And mm -hmm. this just goes to you know what you were saying about being out of the box. And so dyslexics, you know, as you can imagine, struggle with a lot of boxes. You know, I struggled, I still struggle in some ways with linear things. So I learned with my for myself, and, I, and I've known a lot of dyslexics, which tend to be more men, you know, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs are dyslexics that we have to find workarounds or coping mechanisms or whatever that get us through the things that we're supposed to be able to do well or do in a certain way. And often these workarounds end up being better. And I credit my dyslexia as much as I guess my Asperger's to being one of the drivers, but also one of my secret weapons for this mm -hmm. kind of work. And that First, it made me, I couldn't work in the normal boxes, so I had to get out of the normal boxes to start with, but it also allowed me to, like with Erickson, to perceive things differently and in the course of perceiving them differently, create things in a new way that so often ended up being more efficient. And, and I think that is really affable, particularly for men, because you know, we grow, we, and then this whole culture has grown up with a certain model of what it is to be emotional. And as I mentioned in my TEDx talk, I think part of the, what we struggle with men is that that model over, the, you know, or at least since the Industrial Revolution and men went to work and, you know, women were raising the boys and, and really the men, and then the teachers were women, that the model is sort of skewed towards the feminine, which is, I don't think it's any kind of conspiracy, but what's happened is we don't know as men what it is to be fully emotional as a man, which, you know, at least indirectly is what we're able to start to provide with every man. But more specifically, allowing or supporting these men to break out of the traditional model, what it is to be emotional, for some of these guys, it's huge. Once they see and experience some of the, the stuff that we do in our trainings or in our groups or in our coaching, but blown away because it's like, oh, this feels so natural. Why didn't someone show me this earlier? Kind of diving deeper into that concept of, you know, what it means to be 
an emotionally connected man or human, I have a few kind of shorter questions that I would be curious to ask. The first of which would be, what would be your definition of what it means to be a man? <laughs> That's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think first it's really, what does it mean to be a human? Yes. And sometimes I love to ask after, and well, how is it different than what it means to be a human? Men and women are way more similar than they're not. And I think being a human is really about being connected. And it's being connected to yourself and your own experience. And there's many ways that we can experience ourselves. And then really being connected to our world and, and the native traditions would say, you know, to the four worlds, you know, to nature, but also to the technological world that we're in, to all the aspects of life. And then being connected to other humans. And I think that's really the essence of being human is our ability to connect and enjoy that emotional connection that we have and actually need for our own survival. And being a man is first finding your own unique way to to experience that and to do that, and then allowing yourself to do it as a man, which for us isn't a prescriptive way of doing it. There's certain general... um, commonalities that we could probably talk about. But I think in this culture, again, we have lost the meaning and the power and the means to know really how to connect emotionally to ourselves and to other people. And I think that's what needs to be emphasized more. And that's one of our goals with every man is to really uh, support men in that connection. And what we find is that first, our biggest advocates are women. And second, after these guys go to our trainings or coaching or or groups, women are blown away because, and guys come back and say this, you know, laughing, they go, wow, this is what my wife has been telling me, or this is what my partner sees as benefit. And she's been trying to, quote, teach me this for years And then I have this experience with you guys. I learn it in my own way pretty quickly, and it's easier than I ever thought, and it's fun. And I'm naturally doing it with my partner, and I'm not, you know, it's not work. And she's really happy. And the distinction there is women are really perceptive of knowing if we get it or don't get it. They're less effective at teaching men how to do that, say, last 20% of how to connect to our own experience and how to share that experience in a way that fosters more human connection. I love that definition of being human is being connected. So I would venture to ask, how do you think our world would, could, hopefully will be different if we all, men and women, could kind of get this proper emotional exposure education sounds too stiff, but kind of like nurturing guidance to lead more connected lives. I would think it would transform the world. And I don't think we're going to have change or transformation until we get this. I would make an argument that disconnection on all the levels that we just described is what drives all the pain that we experience. And when we, we are connected, we don't do all this aberrant behavior that is literally destroying the planet and, and all of us. 
And so in off of that, and we've talked about kind of obviously everything we've discussed thus far, that understanding can help us all live more connected lives, but more kind of in practice in terms of actionable advice, what might you offer to our listeners as as ways to help intentionally try and lead more connected lives? Simply, and I'm not saying this is easy, simply just being present. And everyone talks about that uh, and may have been told to relax for a long time. And what I started realizing years ago, working with all these men and what brought into every man and we keep developing and honing is this process of really facilitating men to be able to slow down, which allows them to relax, which gets them connected to their own experience, which is the foundation of being able to become vulnerable and to become vulnerable is really the conduit for our connection with others. And so we can say, oh, you got to connect to me or someone else. Well, that doesn't do at least men much good. And you can say, oh, you need to be vulnerable to connect. Well, okay, they might get that. But what do you need to be vulnerable? And first, you need safety. Because if we will not be vulnerable, or it's very hard, or vulnerability is limited, if we feel that we're not safe. In other words, if we're in a survival situation and our nervous system, our endocrine system, our survival system, our sympathetic nervous system is bracing against or dealing with what it experiences as survival, we are not gonna be vulnerable or the vulnerability is gonna be greatly limited. And even if that external situation is safe, but our internal process is one of that sympathetic response, you know, that part of the nervous system or the survival response, we're still going to be struggling with being vulnerable. So the key is for all of us is to slow down and to begin to experience what's happening. And that's scary at first, because if I slow down and I start feeling my body and or my emotions, often the first thing I feel is displeasure, discomfort, pain, fear, you know, all the things that we want to avoid. But the greater my ability to experience and accept those feelings, the greater my ability to be vulnerable, to connect with others, and really to feel pleasure and joy and the beauty of being human. What kind of skills or tools do you use to help yourself be more present? Well, I I always like cheating. And that's one of the other things about being a dyslexic. And I'm being somewhat facetious, but really not doing it in a normal way. So part of my cheating is the more I my body is constitutionally relaxed, the more my soft tissue or fascia particularly is relaxed, the easier it is. So that's where good body work really helps. Uh, not only does it relax you in the moment, but it releases a lot of the chronic stress so that, you know, in this case with me, I'm not up against dealing with that. In other words, I'm not in a relaxed situation, but having a stressful experience. So that's the first thing. I get rid of as much of my chronic stress as I can. I understand this model that I just described. So with that, one of the things I worked on for decades is 
my ability to experience what's happening in the moment to its full extent or, or owning that experience on a physical level, an emotional level. And that's a bit of a game I play. And, and being in these groups has really helped me to do that because there are moments in these groups over the years where it would be intense, you know, emotionally intense. And my job was how much of that intensity could I experience and sort of run through my system before I would check out. And as I developed that skill set or that muscle, I just found myself in other situations just being more and more present. Following that vein of your personal experience, I was wondering if you could give us an example of, you know, a moment or an experience in which you think that you could have been a better man or a better person or kind of not lived up to the version of yourself that you have been exposed to through all this work? So as I mentioned earlier, I just came back from a, doing a couples training with my partner, Dahlia, who's a couples therapist in Northern California. And one of my edges in our relationship is me being just present with her. And it's where my Asperger's does come in is when I'm tired and I I just check out. So, you know, I have my reasons and excuses, but I don't like to make excuses. And there was a time this past weekend where I hadn't slept and, and I was just not there for her. Not, you know, not in some critical way, but just not present. And... And she's really sharp, and she called me on that. And how I own my experience was not to the best of my abilities. So I feel shame and you know, and how I didn't show up, and how I fully or or not immediately own what I did and the impact that it had on her, which had me feel sad because you know I love her and. One of the things I want to do in these trainings is it's a supporter and certainly model what I'm teaching. Um, and that's been one of my ongoing edge is to, regardless of what's happening for me, you know, how much can I stay connected to my own experience and still stay connected to another person? And then in terms of the positive, one of the things that I realized I needed to do many years ago was create a, a really powerful and intense process for men that would in, embody everything that we're, that we're speaking about, you know, emotional physiology, emotions, the body, and man's need to often experience all this through their body moving. And so I created a process called the healing journey that we use in our trainings. You know, I'll ask for a volunteer and we did a training a few weeks ago where you know, I asked for a volunteer. This man stood up in a circle of like 70 guys, and I took him through this healing journey. And when I do that, um, one part of me, yeah, is feeling fear because I'm, you know, I'm in front of 70 guys. I, I don't know what's going to happen. But another part of me just drops into just being very connected to my own experience, but particularly to this man and just working with what happens in each moment 
and in this process, taking the man deeper and deeper and deeper into his own experience, and through that, connecting him up to the parts that he was disconnected from because of stress or trauma. And that is really the culmination of all this work I've I've been doing for over 40 years. That's beautiful. Thank you. I imagine, too, as we were discussing earlier with these groups, one of the biggest kind of growth points and learnings and sources of fulfillment comes from helping other people along that journey. So I love that moment being kind of the culmination of an example of, you know, your work in this this process and journey for you. You mentioned the workshops or retreats that you are doing with your partner that are with now men and women. Your work with every man is kind of men's only retreats uh, and these ones now being with couples. And so I'd love to kind of hear about how you, what you've learned or how you plan to dive deeper into, you know, helping share this process, either give this same process to women who I'm sure can benefit from it or having them be a part of it, but working kind of across gender binaries and across partnerships to help augment the growth and learning even more. Yeah, I I enjoy challenges and that's a challenge. And I see pretty much how naturally I'm able to bring a lot of what we developed with every man and I've been working on for all these years into work with couples. Because again, like I said, men and women are more similar than they're dissimilar. And in my sort of dyslexic way, I just cut to the chase. But in a very kind, soft, gentle way, but in one way, direct way, I cut to the chase. And, you know, I just asked just to back up. So, you know, we teach certain things in these couples uh, trainings. And then the couples go off and work individually. So we don't really do any group work. They might share stuff with a group, but it's really done as a couple. So Dolly and I will go around and work with these couples individually. And I'll just drop in. And in most cases, I don't know these people. So I just drop in and I go, okay, what's happening? And I just really cut to what's taking them out and applying what I've learned with working with men I help both people to drop down into really what they're experiencing and they're not saying. And this, again, it's not that they're resisting not saying it. It's, it's like they don't have the emotional, physiological language. It's true that, you know, generally it's more the man than the woman, but it could be either or both. And, and particularly for the men, what we think, and I use that word deliberately, what we think is emotional communication in most cases is not emotional communication and so what i one of the things i often do for you know both these people is that they think they're having an emotional conversation and they're just giving advice judgments but they're not really talking about their emotional experience particularly in the vulnerable way and so when we can go to vulnerability our own vulnerability that sets us up for empathy and connection with the other person. And when I can help facilitate that, in a course of a few minutes, this couple can have a major breakthrough. 
because it's grounded in just speaking this emotional, physiological language in such a way that it's intrinsic for them. And once they experience it on that level, it's something that they can start replicating on their own. And we get that feedback that that's what they start doing. I'm wondering if you could give a kind of concrete example of whether recent or not, but kind of from either a participant in these trainings or, you know, in any of the men's retreats that our listeners might be able to, on a practical level, use as an example or a guide or, you know, someone from whom you might have learned something in return. So one of the things that I ended up creating that we used that with every man is what we call the rock formula, R-O-C. And so rock is for relax, O is for, or the R is for relax, O is for um, open up and being vulnerable, and C is to connect. And I referred to this earlier. So as we're able to do that with ourselves, we end up developing a much deeper relationship. And inevitably in all these venues from you know the coaching to the couples work to you know all the events with every man in, in our regular groups what i see in all those situations is that with a little guidance people will slow down now the foundation of that is feeling safe so if you're not feeling safe to slow down and to have that experience the first thing you need to do is start working on what it would take for you to feel safe. Some of it can be finding a way for yourself to be safe. You know, will you start off maybe like in a meditation or whatever, where you're not distracted, you're in a physical safe space, and you start to train your body and your nervous system to slow down and, you know, regulate that kind of safety so you know what it is. Uh, and for, for a lot of people, even in the, the safest environments, they're not really feeling safe. So, they're not going to feel safe in any real re- interaction with people. And consequently, they're not going to be able to really connect or people won't feel connected to them. So a lot of the work that we do is on these very basic skills that in this culture, we're not encouraged to develop. And once you start to develop these skills, the rest of it gets pretty easy and often just happens naturally. I think that in terms of talking about safety, Outside of a fight or flight mode or physiological, sometimes we can feel, you know, threatened by our partner or, you know, family member or friend in terms of feeling afraid of, you know, the consequences that might come of breaching a certain topic or trying to express ourselves or not even knowing how to express ourselves. So then, you know, the potential to to fail at doing so or just to enhance the other person's frustration. So, you know, working on practicing that one and realizing that although bringing these topics up, trying to share our perspectives and kind of communicate and talk things out, it can be daunting, can be very difficult and can lead to a lot of fight or flight emotions, but it always pays off. No harm comes or maybe harm in an emotional sense, but in terms of like in the bigger picture, it is always of benefit to try and better understand your perspective and that of the other person, especially since so many issues come out of a very simple root of misunderstanding or misattribution of words or actions. Right on. And, and I think you 
focused on a part that I think is critical that, yeah, you got to be willing to take a risk. And, and often in our groups, we say, put it at risk, you know, take the risk, speak the unspeakable. And then the groups, I joke, look, you don't sleep with these guys, you don't work with them, you might be real tight with them in the group, but you don't generally have extraneous relationships with them. So here's a great place to practice these skills. And same with our events. Mm-hmm. And so the guys get to practice with no real consequence other than in that situation or that moment. Mm-hmm. And most of us, and I don't put myself into this category, have a hard time asking for what we want, speaking the unspeakable. And we, see, you know, I just saw it again this past weekend in this this training for these couples and both men and women saying at the end, wow, you know, there was something I needed to say and I finally said it and it wasn't really that big of a deal. And my partner heard it much better than she or he, I would have expected them hearing it. And we hold on to it, as you say, and it really becomes often the saboteur of a relationship because those are small disconnections and those small dis- disconnections add up to being one big disconnection. And one of the things that one of our friends and mentors talk about, uh, uh, Esther Perel, is the need for excitement in relationships to keep the passion going. And taking these emotional risks is the best way to foster excitement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I think also kind of trying to work together to change that perceived definition of, you know, what is speak the unspeakable? Well, you know, it's only because as a society, we're afraid of speaking things that they're unspeakable. When in reality, once they're spoken, we generally physiologically, mentally, even just on our own out of catharsis can feel better. And then in terms of with the other person, Oftentimes, if these sort of things are approached from the right way, while they can be so daunting and perceptively difficult from the beginning, can, looking back, often are so much easier or make us feel so much better that, you know, it's worth it. So how can we work to kind of change that that norm and all of our, our own perceptions? So to wrap up, and before I ask you a few kind of just for fun, rapid fire questions, I wanted to close by asking you what question or what questions do you think are most important for us to be asking ourselves right now? I think the first question is, what are you experiencing in this moment? What do you experience in your body? Uh, where do you feel tension? You know, what do you feel? What don't you feel? Where you're disconnected from your body? And no judgments, just being aware of it. And that right there, as we know, changes the experience. And then applying that to our emotions. Where do I feel those emotions in my body? What do I feel? And then the next level is, what do I want? You know, what do I want? One of the things that we say in our group groups is, Ask for what you want. It doesn't mean you're going to get it, but the power is in the asking and often the healing or the shift occurs from the asking. And again, we often hold back on not only our feelings, but what we want. And I remember uh, recently I was coaching a guy that was a, a successful attorney. He was struggling in a relationship. He was in 
counseling with his wife and I just supported him to just really feel what he wanted and to go and ask her for that and, and put it to risk. And then I find out that, you know, that simple little conversation transformed their marriage. You know, it, it put them down, going down a new path. So it was a huge release and shift. And it gave them, both of them, a new venue to, you know, to really relate in and develop. Um, and then, you know, I guess the next thing is really, we talk a lot about passion and purpose, particularly for men. And, you know, that's another whole topic. But I think as men, we need to be living for something beyond just our own pleasures. And what we see, again, with these guys in the group, for a lot of these men, one of their purposes becomes, how can I take what I've gone through and leverage it to help other men going through similar things? And there's a huge reward in being who you are and having that make a difference in someone's life. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, too, kind of, we are shaped and kind of influenced by the people around us. And so then who do we choose to surround ourselves by and let shape who we become, but then to, you know, help shape them as well. Those questions are particularly pertinent as well. I love that. And so I guess my last question for people would be, do you make it a priority to connect? In what ways are you choosing to connect more deeply with yourself or with others or to help them do so? So to close out, I have just these kind of silly rapid fire questions. There are two little series of them. And the first one, you just choose one or the other. So I'll give you two options. And well, one of them doesn't have not one of them. So a couple of them are open-ended, but it's just you give the answer. Okay. Pizza or pasta? Neither. Sunrise yoga. I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Fill in the blank then. Uh, Thai food. Sunrise yoga or dancing till sunrise? Uh, sunrise yoga. Drink of choice. Spring water. Hugs or kisses? Hugs. Sex or intimacy? Both. <laughs> nature or nurture? Yeah, on the academic level, nurture. Uh, but um, as a human, I need both. Best year of your life? This year. Who is a hero of yours? An old teacher of mine, uh, her name... Uh, is Nalita Anderson. She's passed away, but she was a medical kahuna. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources 
to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.